Words cannot describe how excited I am. I have been a fan of yours since the 80s. <laughs> Yeah. No, well, seriously, this, this is a huge deal for me. <laughs> I've grown very accustomed to a lifetime of uh, being e either underappreciated or overappreciated, depending on how you look at it. Well, I'm very excited to see which way it's going to go this time. Yes, we <laughs> Slum, slum, slum. Gullion, slum gullion, we've got season two of the slum gullion, Jeff and Scott's girl host the slum gullion, I still don't know what that word means. Hello and welcome back to the Slum Gullion's 100th episode celebration of joy, awesomeness, and me not dying. Every so often we have guests, as you know, and today, oh, oh, do we have a guest. Uh, if my penis could still get hard, I would be rock hard right now because of this. Um, let me give you a few examples of some of the work that our guest, who is well-known in the industry, has directed. In television, he has directed episodes of, let's see, he directed an episode of Jessica Jones, he directed an episode of Veronica Mars, he did several... Okay, stop there. That, that's a career for anybody. The people who listen to this are excited. We're not done. I know, but I'm just saying... We're not done. <laughs> <laughs> we have... Seven episodes of Cali Californication, 15 freaking episodes of True Blood, something we're going to be getting into in a minute, three episodes of American Horror Story. Movie-wise, you might recognize this man from Hudson Hawk, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, one of my personal favorites, and we are going to be talking about this, Meet the Applegates, and yes, of course, motherfucking Heathers. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us for this 100th celebration, Michael Lehman, thank you so much, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Words that cannot describe. As I told you privately, I have been a fan of yours um, for decades. I've, and truly, the line "fuck me gently with a chainsaw" was when I first said, "Okay, I like this guy as a director." I know you didn't write it, but it was still your film. <laughs> but meet the Applegates. I need to thank you personally for meet the Applegates. <laughs> oh, well, that's so unusual. <laughs> I saw Meet the Applegates um, when it came out on VHS back in the day, and the only, and I ran it for a couple of reasons. One, well, I mean, come on, uh, uh, Dabney Coleman is Aunt B. I saw that on the description, and I was like, okay, I have to watch this movie. And then I saw that your name was attached to it. Now, before we get into anything other specific, I have to ask you, this has been bugging me for years. I rewatched the I rewatched the film recently, and I remember this question. Hopefully you can answer this for me. At the, at relatively at the beginning of the film, Dick is trying to hack into a computer yes. and it asks for a password. And he just kind of like offhandedly says the word swordfish and the password is denied. Was that a horse feathers reference? Yes, that was a horse feathers re reference. That was before there was, there was some like Joel Silver movie or something called Swordfish. Oh, right, with uh, Halle Berry and Hugh. What's his name? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's his name? But um, <laughs> it, I believe this was, I think this was before that. But no, that was a horse feathers reference. And, you know, personally amusing. Thank to you. Me. Thank you. Good, I good thought call. that for decades. I did not know. Oh, that makes me so happy. 
<laughs> now, um, before we get into the back stuff, I wanted to, um, I talked to you a, a while ago, and you said that you had been filming. I apparently, um, can you tell us anything about your new project at all? Oh, I, okay, so I went and I directed two episodes of a show that is on Stars called Heal. Oh, uh, shit! Yeah, oh, a couple cool. of brothers inherit their, their suicided father's small town Georgia wrestling operation. Mm -hmm. And I knew a couple people involved and they had a director fallout and they called me and they said, are you available? Would, would you come in and direct a couple episodes? And I, I hadn't, honestly hadn't seen the show. I'd heard about it. I took a look and it's a terrific show. And I said, yeah. And I went and I spent a couple months in Atlanta doing two episodes of their season two. And I, ha I really had a great time. One of the actors in the show is Chris Bauer, who was on True Blood and is also famous for being in The Wire. He's, he's an amazing actor mm -hmm. and a great guy. And he plays a terrific part in the show. So I, I really was very excited to work with him. And this kid, Alexander Ludwig, who was one of the co-stars, was somebody whom I'd auditioned and seen and really liked but had not been able to work with. And it was a pleasure working with him too. So I, you know, I had a great time on the show. Alexander Lud Ludwig fascinates me because he. I, I look at him and I go, okay, somehow a Hemsworth and a Skarsgård bred. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But he's, I don't know Hemsworth, I know Skarsgård well from True Blood. Alexander is a different person, and mm -hmm. uh, I like them all, but he does have that look. He has that tall, Germanic Viking look. He's also, I, I found him, I really thought he was a terrific actor. I, I really, really, really enjoyed working with him. I've only seen one episode, but it's a fun show, and I, I like Stephen Amell, so that's also a factor. Yeah, as, as do I. I've seen it. I've seen a couple episodes, and I did like it. Now there, there, there are so many things that that, that that I want to ask you, but I want to start with this. Tell me about Beaver with a Boner. <laughs> so it's the real <laughs> full title is the Beaver Gets a Boner, and <sighs> okay, and and. So I was in USC film school, and there was a kid there named Redbeard Simmons, who uh, was and is a brilliant person and an extremely darkly funny person. And he was in the writing program at SC film school. He was a, an undergraduate. And that year, which would have been, oh God, 1985, I'm thinking, maybe 83? Mm -hmm. Yeah, somewhere way back then. The students in the writing program were encouraged to write a short script that could be made by the production students into a short film. And it was all, sort of a half-baked competition. Like, if you can write one that's good enough and any of the directing students want to direct it, then, you know, if, if we deign to, to support this, then you'll see, your, you'll see your work get made. And Redbeard wrote what was essentially a parody of a classic USC student film. The student films were always about kids trying to break break out of the, the mold that they were set in at home and in high school and they wanted to, to move on and do something different with their lives, that sort of thing, because the um, the guys who, who carefully controlled what kind of material could get made and supported at USC Film School felt very strongly that students should only be making movies about things about which they had personal experience. And that's all the only experience any, any kid at, at this school ever had. So Redbeard wrote a very funny script about a drug dealer who has his heroin supply flushed down the toilet by his far-right conservative mother, and he has to 
find a way to make money to pay back his vindictive drug supplier. So he, he applies for a scholarship and goes straight in order to win the scholarship, only to find that when he gets the scholarship after humiliating himself in every possible way, that the money doesn't go to him, the money goes to the college that he's supposed to go to. So he goes on a rampage, and one of the things he does is he takes a chainsaw and puts it between the legs from behind of the school mascot beaver statue. <laughs> so that the beaver gets a boner from a chainsaw coming up from between its legs from behind. The Redbeard script was really funny. And it, it read like an underground comic or a John Waters movie. It did not feel in any way like a USC student film. USC student film for very straight laced. And I convinced the faculty to let me direct it. And with the help of Larry Karaszewski, who is you know a mm-hmm. great writer on his own and was my friend in school, Larry really assembled for me a crew of great rebellious young students and we made this film so that's the story and redbeard went on to co-write meet the updates with me okay i thought when you were saying that name i thought i recognized it and now that makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) because as much as i loved heathers and i mean heathers was a groundbreaking film for me (laughs) <laughs> Everything about that film just worked on so many levels. And true, fuck me, Gently with the Chainsaw did become like my phrase for about a year after seeing that film. So thank you for that, even though my friends hated you for that. But I really, really want, please tell me about how Meet the Applegates came on, because I just, I fucking love that movie. <laughs> well, so The Beaver Gets a Boner did get a fair amount of attention in the uh, Hollywood world of film students coming in and showing their work. So I, Redbeard and I both got an agent, uh, a woman named Bobby Thompson at William Morris, who was terrific and uh, had a great eye for talent and a really good uh, dark sense of humor. And we went out as a writing partnership to try to make movies. And we worked every day together and we wrote some stuff and we trying to think exactly how it came about. Somehow or another, we came up with this pitch about the typical American family being, in fact, a, a family of giant, hyper-evolved chameleonic insects from the Brazilian rainforest. <laughs> and Just a concept! It, Just a fucking concept! Yeah, so we kind of thought, all right, nobody else is writing that story. You know... <laughs> <laughs> it's the Reagan 80s. Yeah, it's the Reagan 80s. It's, it's 80, probably 86, 87. Maybe 86. And... This guy at, at New World Pictures named Steve White, who for a moment was running the company, he was the head of production. Steve had been a groundling. He had a great sense of humor. He was an oddball guy. In no way your typical executive. He'd, he'd really been an actor. He was put in charge of production at New World Pictures, which had been Roger Corman's company, but was no longer. It was a separate company. And he saw uh, The Beaver Gets a Boner and he loved it. And he said, I want to meet these guys. And Redbeard and I went in, we sold Meet the Applegates on a pitch. We actually went in and said, I, I, to this day, the high point of my entire career in, in movies and television is that Redbeard and I went into an office and said, okay, picture to yourself, the typical American family, Dick, Jane, Sally, Johnny, Spot the Dog, everything right out of an old a Dick and Jane primer. Only they're not the typical American family. They are, you know, the hyper-evolved, uh, giant, 
chameleonic insects. <laughs> and, and we said they have come to the United States to infiltrate a nuclear power plant to detonate and cause a meltdown so that the world would be safe for insects because everybody knows insects are the only survivors of nuclear holocaust. And we said, <laughs> so that's what they're doing. But what they find is that they they get seduced by all the foibles of typical American <laughs> familyhood. And Johnny becomes a drug dealer. Sally becomes a militant lesbian. Uh, Jane becomes shopping obsessed and blows all their money on the home shopping network. And Dick, Dick, who hasn't landed a job at a nuclear power plant, has an affair and completely blows his cover and blows his job and the family ends up destroyed and can't detonate the plant and, and destroy the world for humans. So we pitched that idea and Steve White said, I love it, great, we'll pay you, write it. Good that grief. That's amazing. That was before yeah. Heathers? That wow! Was, we sold that before Heathers. Now, we were writing it, and we were in the middle of writing it when Daniel Waters, who wrote Heathers, who was uh, good friends with Larry Karaszewski, who was, of course, my friend from school, and I knew Dan through Larry. Larry called me and said, Dan needs an agent. He's written an incredible script, and he needs to get an agent. Can you show it to Buck Thompson, your agent? And I said to Larry, who was Scott Alexander's writing partner, had already done extremely well out of school, that we were all kids, and, and they had an agent at ICM. I said, show it to your agent, you know? And Larry said, I, we did, but she didn't get the script. She just didn't get it. She was patronizing to Dan. She said, you know, you'll never get anywhere with this thing. I said, okay, let me read it. And I read Heather's, and I was like, holy fuck, this script is amazing. I took it to Bobby, and she said, holy fuck, the script is amazing. I want to represent the <laughs> And Dan said, yeah, I'd like Stanley Kubrick to direct this. Oh, God. <laughs> and Bo oh Bobby my God. said, yes, well, Dan is brilliant, you know, and he, and he knew how good his script was. And he said that to Bobby. She said, okay, I'll get it to Stanley. We'll see what he says. And I called Bobby and I said, by the way, when Stanley passes, please consider bringing it to me because I've got a deal already to write something yet new. Where she knew this. She said she was my agent. Set it up. I said, I've got this deal with New World, and um, they might be interested. And so, while Redbeard and I were working on Meet the Applegates, Heather's got taken with the producer Denise Denobi, who was also a client of Bobby's and a friend. Denise took Heather's and me and Dan into New World, and Steve White, the same guy who bought the pitch for Meet the Applegates, said, I'll make Heather. So, we made Heather's while Meet the Applegates was in development. And, wow! Yeah. And then once they saw Heather's, the people at New World said, holy shit, we think this movie's really good. We want to make your next film, which we happen to own, so we're going to make Meek the Applegates. And I remember saying, yeah, but it's not ready yet. It's Redbeard and I are working on it. We, we need to do more drafts. We haven't, we haven't really figured out the third act. They said, we don't care. We want you to make this film. And my agent yes. sat me down, and they said, you cannot say no to a, to a go picture. You don't know anything about the movie business. You don't know how hard it is to get a go picture. And I said, okay. And so I think before I even finished post-production on Heather's, we were shooting Meet the Athletes. Before you finished post-production? Wow. I went back to back to back. Heather's Meet the Applegates and Hudson Hawk without any kind of break at all. Oh, dear God. Oh, damn. 
After making Hudson Hawk, of course, I had a very long break. Okay, I gotta say, I'm, and I'm gonna say it, I am one of the few who like that movie as well. One of the things that I like about your work, and I think this also stretches into um, Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window, which we'll get to shortly, trust me on that, okay. is that everything that I've seen of yours, film-wise, takes place in its own little weird dimension. Nothing yeah. seems to exist in the real world so to speak and um hudson hawk to me was just another weird little universe and i did i really dug it but i, I again I, I have to blow mo more smoke up your ass good sir meet the apple gates was the first film that i thought was made specifically for me <laughs> because when no when, when it came out on vhs none of my friends liked it None of my Star Trek friends liked it. None of my horror friends. They all thought, what the? I, I had somebody say to me, I said, you got to watch this with me. And we watched the VHS. And his reaction was, what the fuck was that? And that just made me feel even better because I was like, it's my movie. It's absolutely my movie. So thank you for that, for making that movie for me 30 years ago. Well, I'm very fond of that movie. And I... Good. I am you know, glad because that's a great fucking film. Yeah, nobody's seen it. It doesn't have really any life whatsoever. I, I every very occasionally get a call that somebody's screening it. I screened it at, at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn a few years ago. And ah. it, oh, wow. Yeah, at the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley a few years ago. And those are the only two times I've watched it in the last 20 years at least. And I watch the movie and I go, well, okay, you know, if we couldn't get everything right, we paid for very little and, you know, you do your best. But I challenge anybody to come up with a more perversely odd premise for a comedy. <laughs> Again, the gauntlet has been thrown, people, so what you're thinking, Caps on. But good luck. Good luck. Somebody will come up with something. But, uh, but I'm very proud of the film. And, and I think that, you know, Redbeard, who I don't believe ever got another screenplay produced is a super brilliant guy and and an amazing writer and we had a great time writing that script i have to ask um where did the idea of dabney coleman as aunt b come from i mean was it was it, was it written to be a man or dabney how did that happen i think when we wrote it we were very open-minded about what to do with it honestly i can't remember uh, if we wrote aunt b as gender indeterminate but I think, and this was not something that was bandied about in those days, that whole concept. We, we right. felt like this, this creature is a bug. It's an insect. Who cares if it's male or female? It has nothing to do with anything. And we thought that the, the idea of making this character be Ant B, which of course, you know, an ant and a bee, and also happening to be Mayberry, Ant B, and, and I should add, um, Redbeard grew up in Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is ah, Mayberry. <laughs> that's right. Actually, from Mayberry. So, we, you know, for us personally, to call this character Aunt Bee was really funny, and to say it's an ant and a bee, and who cares what the gender is? Um, but this this character is going to be female when she shows up as a human, but the character as an ant and a bee and a chameleonic insect from from Brazil, really no agenda differences. So I think that was 
part of the concept, and both Redbeard and I were huge fans of Dabney Coleman. Not only from all his work over the years in film, but particularly from a show called Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill. Oh, Buffalo Bill. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, our feeling was that guy is awesome. He's really funny. He gets it. He's he's brave. He'll do whatever. And we went to him and we asked him if he wanted to do it. He said yes. So we like, okay, there we go. And he he played it in a dress with his mustache and the whole thing, and it was, it was really fun. Classic line delivery, I got there relatively early on, the first time we see Aunt B when he's on the phone, and uh, the guy comes by and grabs her ass, and he's like, uh, no, nothing like I think I just got raped. I fucking love that line. <laughs> So let me tell you something. Dabney Coleman is far and away the best actor I've ever worked with at looping lines, okay? You know what that is. There's plenty of actors who are very good at reproducing a performance that they made or at finding a way to get a new line reading to fit the lip movement that's there on the picture that you can't change, all that kind of stuff. Daphne took every opportunity to sneak in extra lines whenever there was any lip flap on it. And that line, I think I just got raped, if I remember correctly, was him improvising on the dubbing stage to the lip flap that was some sort of indeterminate movement of his mouth. Good God. <laughs> what he did was he looked at it and he goes, uh, wait a minute, I think I, I can fit something in there. And, and I said, okay, Daphne, go, go to town. And he goes, oh, I think I just got raped. And uh, I, think that's, I, no, I think that son of a bitch just raped me. It, it's something that's like that. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it was based on the movements of his lips, which were inarticulate and had no sound from him. Amazing. Oh, oh, that 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 just makes me so happy. Oh, jumping, just bouncing around, just because I, I, I like bouncing around. I am interested in this. Um, what's, did you do like the different seasons of American Horror Story, or was it all one season? Uh, it was the first two seasons, so I, I think I did episode, I, I don't know the numbers, I think it was episode 10. Right. Of the first season, that was the one where the teenage girl discovers her own body in the house. Okay. And um, and then I did two episodes in the second season, the one in the oh, asylum. Yeah, I did it. One of the greatest seasons of horror television, period. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. I, I did the one with um, Ian McShane as the bad, evil Santa Claus. <gasps> and I did oh. the, the one where Jessica Lang sings the name game. I was about to ask if that was yours, damn you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that moment. Thank you for, seriously, that whole, that whole season, like I said, it's one of my, it's my favorite season of American Horror Story. I think it's one, like I said, one of the best horror things on TV. That moment, Scott can tell you, I love non sequiturs and I love random musical numbers. And that was just brilliant. That entire scene was brilliant and just, ah. Uh, I'm so glad that was you. That makes me so happy. <laughs> well, that, you know, it, that is, as, as everything in there, that's Ryan Murphy. I mean, you know, I was hired to direct an episode. I had no choice about what happened in the episode, and Ryan right. was happily gave me that one, you know. The, the transition to the musical number was brilliant. I love the way it started. Great choreography, by the way. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, what happened was they were in production on Glee at the same time. So we were able to use a bunch of Glee's people to do that number. And oh. it, 
you know, because in television, to do a big musical number like that, if it's not part of your show the way it was in Glee, would, would require assembling a lot of talent and figuring it out. And in this case, those people were already employed by Ryan Murphy, so it was it was amazing what we were able to do in a, in a television schedule and pull off. And Jessica Lange is fucking awesome. I mean, she's amazing. Uh, yeah, um, one of my favorite performances of her is Sister Jude. I just one of my favorite characters. Okay, bouncing around again because I um, I I know we have a limited amount of time. I want to talk about the woman in the house across the street from the girl on the window. Yeah. First saw the thing. I saw Kristen Bell was in it. I love her, and I wasn't sure if I was going to watch it or not. And then, true, I saw that your name was attached. And when I saw that you were doing this, I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to check this out. And once again, thank you for making a television show for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that uh, that was one of the most brilliant comedies I have seen in a a long time. And I I have to ask. Was there any pushback from that final reveal? No, here's the thing. First of all, thank you for liking the show. I, I am immensely proud of that. And, you know, it did it did well. And, you know, a lot of people saw it. So I, I, I can't complain. But I truly, I was really happy with everybody's work on that show. And I think it's quite an unusual piece. So, no there pushback. I think there was pushback from the many people who watched the show and still, by the last episode, didn't realize it was a comedy. <laughs> uh, and, and there were a lot of them. I saw this on social media and go, I fucking love this show until that last episode. What is, how is that possible? That's entirely implausible that this little girl, you know, laughed. Oh my God. <laughs> I go, you actually invested all the time to watch all those episodes and didn't realize you were watching a comedy? That is incredible. That is, I thought it was incredible because that was, that was kind of the, kind of the idea behind it was let people figure out as they go along the amount of comedy that's in here without ever making it easy for them by giving them jokes mm-hmm. and I, I knew what i was i knew what i was in for and was on board i think within the first five minutes within the first actually two minutes when in her opening monologue she makes the kind of about occasionally speaking in a fake british accent yes yes well once that line popped up i was like okay i know what this is i am in let's do this right that that was our hope was that you know, everybody would get that. And what we found was that, yes, most people got it. And the people who were inclined to enjoy this sort of thing really liked it. But there were a lot of people who just simply thought, well, there were there were a lot of people who thought it was a really good, taut, you know, female suspense thriller. And then figured out at the end that we were kind of making fun of the suspense thriller the whole time. There were other people who thought it was just an incompetent suspense thriller <laughs> <with> cliches. <laughs> <laughs> and, and couldn't believe that we were so lacking in invention, which is hilarious. And then there were people like you who got it, who figured out right up front, oh my God, they are, they're going to take genre elements and <clears throat> fuck with them. And they're going to fuck with them for our pleasure. And they're going to do it still maintaining all, all the necessary trimmings of a good suspense thriller so that you can maintain your interest and have fun watching it, knowing that it's not meant to be taken seriously. So true story. Um, my, the, um, uh, my, the roommate, the guy I was living with at the time, he watched the whole show before I did. 
And I honestly didn't think it was going to be his type of thing, and he loved it. He told me, what he told me was, I need to be there when you watch the last episode. <laughs> and he sat there and watched me and my reaction, and honestly, my jaw dropped, and I missed dialogue because I was laughing so hard. Yeah, I had to rewatch the. I had to rewatch that episode after I watched. I could not stop laughing. I mean, Pete came in, just sat there and looked at me when that scene came on, and truly, sir, my jaw dropped. So once again, thank you for that. Well, we had a lot of fun doing that. You know, Kristen Bell is. She's amazing. She is truly. She's massively talented, and she is a wonderful person to work with. And. I've enjoyed every minute I've ever had on set with her, and she totally understood what we were going for. She, you know, she was a big part of it, and she was willing to play it straight the whole time, perfectly. And to do that scene where she has a big, drag-out, violent fight with a with a little girl was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to ask. Um, at the end, there is kind of a sequel bait thing. If the response had been a little better and you didn't have the, the idiots who didn't get it, would you have done a second season? Because, I mean, it, it worked. The ending works on its own without it. But then the other part of me was going, now I want to see more. That tag ending was included as it was part of the whole conception of the show. So it, it wasn't okay. meant as a thing like we're going to do more. It was meant really right. as a more of a more of a, a comic nod to the fact that anytime anybody makes something that kind of works they're, they're already setting up a sequel so we did not intend to make a sequel i kept saying Perfect. as i always say what would the sequel be but we also said at some point well if, if netflix wants to do more of these we'll just we'll make fun of different genres or something like that you know because we couldn't do the same story again or the same genre again uh I thought that tag, to me, it felt, because my, my wife reads these thrillers endlessly. There's a yeah. thousand of them around the house. And she she generally doesn't like the women in Jeopardy movies, the TV movies, the Hallmark movies, the Lifetime movies, because they're really, for the most part, not well done and just endlessly, punishingly repetitive. But the thing about the books is, and I've read some of there's, you know, we're on vacation, there's nothing else. And every time you get to the end of those books, a new book starts. Because it's always, they, these women, at least the ones my wife reads, write, are incredibly prolific, write a thousand books in their lifetime, and it's like, oh, did you enjoy this? Well, here's the next upcoming, you know, sometimes it's not even the same character, but they, they gave you a little bit of it. That's kind of what it felt like. It's like, yeah, her next adventure. That was exactly what it was intended to be. Oh, okay. Yeah. That is awesome. If we can make time for one of my pet theories, Jeff knows how I am about my pet theories. I sort of felt when I saw the series and came to the end of it, I thought, oh, this is going to kill off Lifetime as a network. <laughs> and that's based on my theory that Heathers killed off the 80s teen comedy. Because if you look at all the stuff that came out, all the stuff we remember, it's all pre-Heathers. I mean, even... Uh, after Heather's came out, even uh, John Hughes stopped making teen movies. And it was like, she's having my baby or, you know, Uncle Buck, which was a different thing. Um, it seemed like it got to the point where it it's so savage, the genre, that doing it again, you'd have to be, you'd have to have not a, not a dram of self-consciousness in your body 
to attempt to make a teen comedy after Heathers came out. And it seemed like things did kind of take, and we got started getting more serious. You know, I got stand by me. We got started getting more serious things. That was one of the reasons I loved it when it came out. I thought, oh, good luck making Screwballs 8. It's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, um, I was shocked that anybody made an action movie after Hudson Hawk. Well, I I think you I think you would have had a better shot, but nobody saw it. If people had seen it, you would have killed off the genre, yes. So I bet, I want to ask you something about that too, because you I read that I believe your budget for Meet the Applegates was higher than your budget for Heather's. Is that correct? Mm, I'm not sure. Okay, but the budget for Hudson Hawk was way higher, right? Because you were shooting that overseas. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. How do you feel the first when you go from like a five million dollar movie to a sixty five million dollar movie or whatever it was? What is that first day like? How do you feel when you walk out? It's like, oh, there's not much riding on this. Uh, you know, I remember walking on the set of Heather's on our first day of shooting, and it was um, a croquet. We we shot a croquet mm. scene on the first day, and I drove to the location, parked my car walked along the street to the house that you know where the backyard was and there were trucks you know production trucks up and down the street it was a real movie and i'd worked in film i'd worked on films as you know in much lower capacities for a number of years and i holy fuck i am actually walking onto the set of a movie where i'm the director and look at all these trucks and all this stuff so that was an awesome humbling, amazing experience. Showing up for Hudson Hawk, it was like, okay, yeah, you know, this is a bigger version of the same thing. And if I remember right, our first day of shooting on Hudson Hawk was at Sing Sing uh, in the Hudson River Valley in Austin, New York. And it was the same feeling that I think one gets, you know, if you're making a movie, when you first step on set and you look around and go, Jesus, I, you know, it's not just going to be me and a few friends pointing a camera at some people who want to be actors. We're going to be making a big film with all the support and all that stuff. And it's daunting and it's frightening and it's exhilarating all at the same time. But honestly, by the time I started shooting Hudson Hawk, I think I was pretty well aware that I was in a world that was going to be very, very difficult to, to maneuver. Started in the 80s, I guess. Was it the yeah. 80s or earlier? And it was all film, and you had to, yeah. you know, you had to wait for for dailies. And now, now you just, you know, look at your pad after you shot a scene. And back then, you had a lot of young directors going from TV to film. And now you've got a ton of directors going from film to TV because there's so much more work. But the it's also the quality of the work because there's so much you can't do in film now because they're getting very intolerant of some of the more quirky genres that you used to be able to go see in a movie theater. Now that stuff is all on TV. All the, you know, A lot of the really heavy character-based stuff, it's all on television. What's it feel like now to work in a time when, when TV, to a certain extent, has more cachet or has more rabid fans than film does? Well, you know, I, I made the transition quite a few years ago, and I did it because the kind of movies that I was able to get made were interesting to me less and less. And so I think I had an early dose of that. Where I had I had done some work in television over the years. I directed the pilots. I'd worked. I directed an episode of The West Wing, and I did Larry oh. Sanders show. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did mm-hmm. these things. Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Five, five of them. Wow. Um, and 
and I enjoyed, and I did one of the first episodes of Homicide. You know, I to me, what? TV, yes, TV was an opportunity. Wow. Yeah, it, it was. I was in features. I was a comedy director, and I was pretty much a darker comedy director, and that, and that was I was happy, and that was good. In TV, I could go do a drama. You know, I could do a straight drama like Homicide. I could I could do the kind of comedy that you didn't do in film when I did Larry Sanders' show because it was essentially television. It was really good television. And so I enjoyed the little bits of TV that I did, and I never felt like I was slumming it, and I never felt like I was working... You know, I was working in a more restricted medium as a director. But by the time the early 2000s rolling around, I was not getting the same opportunities to make films that I'd had 10 years previous because of a very competitive environment and I hadn't had a big hit. You know, I guess 40 Days and 40 Nights did pretty well, but um, mm-hmm. I wasn't really liking the stuff that was available to me and it wasn't like I was going to sit down and write another meet the Applegates because I probably couldn't have gotten made at that point anyway. So I started looking to cable television and found that the work that I was doing there was much more interesting. You know, I was doing Big Love. I was doing this show called The Comeback that I did. I ended up doing Californication and True Blood. And these it, and all my friends who were filmmakers would say to me, how did you wh- how did you get into that stuff? And I said, well, I always did a little bit of TV, and it's a different medium. It's a different medium for directors, different way of working. I said, but, but there's good stuff being done there by good writers and being supported in the cable space. And um, I just thought this was where the good work was, and I did it. And I didn't think about career, and I didn't think about big screen, small screen. I just said, this is good material. I'm going to do it. And the world then came around to that. I never went back to doing features, really. And, um, and I never looked back. But a lot of my friends who were filmmakers couldn't break into television because they had never done it. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't really know how that world worked. And the television world is not particularly friendly to directors. This is something I'm sure you guys know and have heard, right? Yeah. You know, writers run the shows. In the sort of history of Hollywood, there's been a lot of friction between writers and directors. Uh, writers are treated very badly in the feature space, and as a consequence, directors have been treated very badly in the television <laughs> space. So, you know, I found a way to work with people I like and to get enough respect and also to enjoy what my duties were as a director in television and try to do good work. But, um, yeah, it's all switched around. It's completely switched around. Well, taking the example you just mentioned, I think when you look back, the evolution of how things have gone was visible even if you look at, say, one particular genre, like the police procedural, because in the 70s you had, you know, Starsky and Hutch. And then, you know, in the 80s you got Hill Street Blues, in the 90s, you got Homicide. Then you got The Wire. I mean, TV genres have matured. It seems, to a certain extent, it seems like because so much money is at stake in movies now and everyone's terrified to make a move, it's just becoming ossified as far as the tropes and the, the cliches and the, the genres that, that they keep throwing money at. And so far, that doesn't seem to have happened to TV. And I think you're, you're right that the difference between movie and TV has decreased because one... TV special effects, if you look at the Marvel shows, are, are just as amazing. But it's also, TV shows look more like movies. They're, when the directors, when they get a good director who knows how to work in that space, some some TV shows look stunning nowadays, which is nothing you would ever say before. 
And, you know, with the theatrical window shortening before it gets out of streaming services, it's kind of all one big thing now. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, the televisions that people watch on are far better than they were before. I mean, you know, in, in even in the 90s, people were not looking at anything made for television on a big flat screen, high resolution monitor. That right. wasn't what you watched. On. And now everybody's home has a screen that's probably better than your average 1990s art house movie screen. And the sound system is good and you, you can access anything anytime you want. And also the technology of filmmaking. I mean, we shot, we shot True Blood on film. You um, did? Really? Yes. And oh. American Horror Story was shot on film in the early days. There were still people shooting in film fairly recently. For the most part, digital production does give you greater production value for less money and less trouble. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the expectations for production value are much higher, obviously, now than they had been in the past. And they require directors who know how to work cinematically. Right. Uh, yes. But sometimes we struggle with writers who say, I want my words uttered exactly as I intended them by actors in close-ups. And that's it. And that's all I care about. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even begrudge that because... Some, some of my favorite writer friends and writers I've worked with basically feel that way. And I'll just go, yeah, great, okay, I get it. But we can also make this cinematic. It is an audio-visual medium, even though I might personally say it's a visual medium. And words are important, absolutely, and they always have been in all the work that I've done. But words are also just manifestations of behavior, and cinema is watching behavior. And that is something that some writers basically roll their eyes at me and say, sure, whatever, and go, go do what you do. And others go, absolutely. And I support that. And that's how I want to work. Well, that's fascinating because 20, 30 years ago, as recently as that, TV was basically radio with not great pictures. You know, it, was all, it was all talking heads. There was, you know, when they would have a made-for-TV action sequence, it would be brief and unconvincing. And then it was back to people in a room talking to each other. And I can see why some people are still sort of in that mindset if they grew up with that. On the other hand, in the writer's room, they're always telling you, write it cheap. Can you set this in the same place? Writers are, are encouraged not to think cinematically because that's expensive. So I'm wondering, I'm hoping that those those two groups will stop working at cross purposes. Yeah, but directors can help. You know, the writers don't have to think that way when they write the stuff. Hmm. They should, but they might not. And it's still a good director can look at this and say, great, here's how we do it and still save money and still keep it within bounds and stay within your budget, stay within the schedule and have it look better. It really, what I find is it depends on the sensibility of the writer who may or may not be a word I don't love as showrunner. But, you know, mm-hmm. the, if, if the writer who is running the show um, does not think cinematically, and doesn't care about it, then they're probably not going to get much of that in. If they think that it's just too complicated or expensive, we can work with that. Right. I had a friend who was in a writer's room. He was saying that a couple of the writers are guys who had wanted to be playwrights, but theater is basically, it's kind of what's happened in movies where everything has to be a multi-million dollar spectacle now in order to get people you know, off their couches away from the 50-inch TV and out to the multiplex. It's kind of the same thing with Broadway where it's you know, it's, it's $400 to take the family out and everything's an overblown musical. 
there are very few little intimate chamber dramas anymore. So people who want to be playwrights are migrating to TV thinking, okay, that's where the character work is. That's where they can really write the, the meaty drama. And the showrunner, first thing, said, by the way, you're not playwrights. Your words are not inscribed in tablets of gold like the Mormon Bible. It's TV, it's entertainment, and we're all in this room together trying to make this shit work. So I kind of understand why people who want their words to have great significance are drawn to TV now. But again, that, that seems very uncollaborative or anti-collaborative. Right. You get all sorts of different approaches in the world of television these days. It, it is interesting to see what people are told um, in the writer's room and what the, what the projects are and how they feel vis-a-vis -vis cinema and television and plays and writing and all that sort of stuff. You get a wide variety. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, my feeling is I, I do respect the people who create and run television shows because it's a huge, complicated, difficult job. And a lot of the time what they're looking for from a director is a visual sensibility, good staging, and the ability to get, you know, correct performances from the actors. Uh, correct meaning in line with the tone that's established for the show. And and I like that. And that's that's good. That's a good way to work. But it's tricky. One last question for me about, on that topic. When you talk to an actor about a particular moment, about their performance, about how you want to pitch it or, or what the tone is you're going for, how easy is it to talk to somebody about their character when they've been playing it for, say, three years? It, it depends who they are. And mm -hmm. It depends how they feel about what they're doing. So an example is... Um, well, doing True Blood, where I was on the show from the first season, and I did a lot of episodes, I could talk to any of the actors about their characters, because I'd, I'd grown with them. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't going to suggest something that changed their character, unless it was suggested in the script, in which case we could talk about it. Mostly, I was supporting their decisions and trying to help them find the best way to do it. You know, the best way to be the character that's been established same coming in to do like in Jessica Jones I came in um, to do the first episode of the third season and I, I'm not going to tell Kristen Ritter how to play Jessica Jones you know she's been doing it for two seasons she she could tell me how she wants to play it and that's fine but it is it's interesting you know you don't what you want to do is help people do the best version of the of the character that they've established and the best one in the context of the show that you're doing. And that does require quite a bit of direction. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if you're just sitting there going, yeah, I can't, you know, I can't tell them what to do because they know better than me. I just say I should be up to date on what their character is and how they've done it. And I may have some hints on how to bring something different to it, um, if it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it actually reminds me of something that uh, a friend of mine said. Uh, uh, we were talking to somebody else who wasn't into film, and they, were, and they asked if we could explain the auteur theory. And my friend put her hand over my mouth and said, before I could speak and said, an auteur is somebody who looks at a bunch of shit and says, okay, I think we can make it work if we all do this. And I thought, that's eh, kind of true. That's kind of true. I mean, the... The people who are auteurs know how to pull all these disparate elements together and make them work. That's aside from the whole, you know, their themes. And I mean, if we're going to look at directors and judge them by your themes, your theme seems to be the one you've, you've returned to time and again in your work, seems to be chainsaws in the crotch. <laughs> yes. 
that's usually when I get hired to direct a television show. I look to see if there's chainsaw in the crotch, <laughs> and if there's any way that anybody could be fucked with the chainsaw. And, and if there is, and I feel like it hasn't covered ground that I've covered before, I might say yes. Okay, yeah, I, I, I see this. I see this is right for me. The, the thing is, is that there, there is. You can be as a director. You can be an interpreter. And you can be the person who is going to bring something and make it come alive, but have it be a sensibility that you have not initiated. Or you can, you know, if you're involved, as I was in Meet the Applegates, you know, to, from the beginning, where you're going to play a much bigger hand in um, determining tonality all around from the start. I also, the nicest thing that people ever say to me when they, when they look at television I've done is if they say, oh, I watch that show, I can always tell if it's one of your episodes. Oh. I, I don't know what they mean by that. You know, they, they could just be trying to flatter me because they want me to pay for dinner or something like that. But <laughs> in fact, if they mean it, I go, that's great. That's what I want. I don't want you to feel like you're watching a different show. I don't want you to feel like somebody's reinvented what you've chosen to invest your time in. I want you to feel like, oh, I like those better. So that's kind of the best thing you can tell me if you're watching the work that I do on an established show. Well, speaking for myself, your stuff looks a little too good. My sole complaint with the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window was it looked too good to be one of the movies it was parodying. It's like, eh, this is a little too, got too much of a sheen. It was just a little too perfect, which I, I later started to feel was part of the joke. That was the joke. Okay. You know, my I said, yes. you know, they called me to do this show. Kristen and I worked well together. She put me on a list of directors. The, the show was already in development when they called me. And, and I looked at an outline. I didn't read the scripts. I don't think they were done yet. I, I looked at an outline. I, I sort of saw what they were doing. And I said, look, you guys, there's only one way I'm going to be able to make this. And that is to try to play it so close to the vest I want it to look like a really 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 well made female suspense thriller I want to shoot it like a drama I want to shoot it well uh, you know within the budget that we have and the means that we have I don't want to parody the genre by making fun of the style I want to make comedy out of the genre by sticking very closely to the rules that would be set if we were doing the straight version so I didn't make jokes in the style the same way we didn't make jokes within the, the story itself. We let it be what those things are, but just done in a way that clearly undermined everything that those things are meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we let you go, good sir, um, I do have one last question for you. I read somewhere that at, at, at one point you were involved in Ed Wood. Is this true? Yeah, yeah. I, if you look at the movie, I get a credit as executive producer. Oh, that's right. You said Larry Karaszewski a, was a friend of yours from school. Yeah. So here, here's the story. This is an interesting Hollywood story. Larry and Scott were my buddies from school, and they came out of SC Film School the same time I did, and they had sold a couple of scripts, including Problem Child, which was their, mm -hmm. the first movie that they wrote that got made. And, you know, I did Heathers and Meet the Applegates and Hudson Hawk, and... By the time Problem Child had come out and Hudson Hawk had come out, Larry and Scott and myself were three uh, movie makers who knew what it was like 
to get up on a Friday morning and read the reviews of our work and to be told that we'd made the worst movie ever made. And they called me and they said, we just read a, a book about Ed Wood and his circle of friends and you know collaborators. And we think this would make a great movie. And I said, oh, fuck, you're right. I mean, we, we watched Ed Wood movies when we were in film school. And, so, and we watched them all together. And I said, what a great idea. And I said, who would be better for this than us? Because like Ed Wood, we know what it's like to be called the worst filmmakers ever. <laughs> and we laughed about that. They said they had thoughts about where they were going to take the movie to try to set it up. And, and I said, no. I said, we should take this to Denise Denobi and Tim Burton because Tim Burton will get this. And Denise had produced Heathers and Meet the Applegates. And, and I said, these are people who are going to understand what this is about. And, and we took the idea as an idea to Denise and Tim. And Denise called me and said, yeah, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we love this. The bad news is Tim is saying he wants to direct it. And, and, and I said, well, I, I don't care. I'm not bringing this to Tim to direct it. I'm bringing it to Tim to be a producer on it. And she said, you don't understand. He loves this idea. He he is he's going to want to direct it no matter what and i said well i don't care this is, this is this is not for tim to direct this is for tim to produce and he at that time he was attached to direct a movie called mary riley that was made I think, mm -hmm. um, you know with uh, julia roberts and um mm -hmm. uh british you know great british director so i said you know, no. But then I thought, well, this is terrible. You know, Scott and Larry called me about this. It was their idea, um, and I've been working with them on trying to figure out how to make it into a movie. But if Tim Burton really wants to make this movie, he's going to get it made a whole lot better than I am because my previous movie had been Hudson Hawk, and his previous movie had been Amber fucking scissor hands or something like that. So, <laughs> uh, y you know, so I called Tim, who I knew a little bit, and I said, look. I said, I know you want to direct this. He goes, yes, I really, really, really want to direct it. I said, I respect that, and I know that you can get the movie made. Here's the deal. If you make this movie as your next film, and if you keep Scott and Larry, who he didn't know, if you keep Scott and Larry on at least through two drafts of the script, and you make it as your next film, then you can make me an executive producer, and I will step aside as director and I'll be very happy to see you make this. I said, however, if you don't make it as your next film, if you, if you decide you're gonna go ahead with Mary Riley or any other thing, then I'm asking you to let me continue as director, we'll develop this thing, and you can be on it as a producer and you can contribute as a producer. And Tim said to me, he said, you don't understand, I am going to make this as my next film no matter what. And I said, good. I, it's good. You, you're now incentivized to make it as your next film and to keep Scott and Larry involved, which is very important to me. He said, great, mm -hmm. no problem. I said, good. Let, let's, let's see where that goes. And sure enough, Scott and Larry wrote a first draft, which was brilliant. And we read it. And I, got, I had the pleasure of doing Bela Lugosi's voice through a, an out loud reading ah. script long before wow. anybody else got a hold of it. Um, and, and it was great. And I said, okay, and gave it to Denise and Tim. 
And Tim said, I'm making this. That's it. He, I don't even think he did a second draft of the script. And Scott and Larry stayed on, and they went on to do other stuff with Tim, and Big Eyes. And, and sure enough, I got an executive producer credit on the movie, and I got a, some sort of a paycheck. And I was, honestly, I love the film. I think Tim did an awesome job. I think it's his best movie. And, and I think he's made a lot of good movies. And I'm very happy to have my name on it. But I'm still a little disappointed. Well, it's a it's it's a great Hollywood story. It's it stops just shy of being a classic Hollywood story because it contains a guy with a conscience, which immediately throws me out of the story. It's like, wait, the guy in Hollywood with a conscience who does a good turn for writers? I don't know, man. I don't know if I can believe. It. I think this needs this story needs another draft. No, here's the thing. Scott and Larry are very good friends of mine, and. The, the fact is, at that time, Tim Burton could have said he wanted to make the phone book and he would have gotten the green light. Right. I could have said I wanted to make whatever the greatest movie was. I, that I've got the new Citizen Kane and people who said, sorry, you know, your last movie was such an You're not going to be able to make it. So there was a practical element to it. But yes, I wasn't going to say to my friends, I'm going to stop this from getting made by Tim Burton. <laughs> that would have been really horrible. I, I said, I'm going to make sure that you guys are protected because I knew Tim a little bit and I knew Denise very well. And I said, I'll make sure you're protected and maybe we can get this movie made. Because who, you know, who the fuck comes up with an idea of a movie about Ed Wood and realistically thinks it's going to go into production in a major studio? Was it based on Nightmare of Ecstasy? The oral history? Because it's not even really a narrative. It's just a bunch of people talking about him, right? That's yeah. That's I mean, I don't know if it's based on it, but that's what they read, and um, and and we all knew about Ed Wood from reading about it from other places. So I think that they were inspired by learning more about the Ed Wood's group of collaborators. <laughs> what that is the nicest way I've ever heard his people described. <laughs> <laughs> well, one other thing, Tim, to his credit. The, the movie was originally set up at Columbia Pictures, and um, and it was going to be made for $25 million or whatever, and it was all, all in place. And he said he wanted to make it black and white. And Peter Goober and you know whoever was running the TriStar Columbia at that point said, no, we're not going to spend $25 million making a black and white movie about a trans transvestite film, bad filmmaker from the 50s. And... Um, and they said, we're not going to do it. And Disney, um, the evil Disney Corporation, said, this is our chance to get Tim Burton working for our company. And they went to Tim and they said, you can make Ed Wood however you want, black and white, whatever, as long as you come into the Disney fold because we are going to make, you know, Tim Burton theme parks and we're going we're gonna to make you big. And Tim had gone to CalArts, Disney School or whatever. So... It was his his insistence that he made that movie the right way, the right way for him, that, that helped make it into the great film that it is. So I don't think I would have ever been able to do that sort of thing. So it was best for the project. It's if only more decisions were made made based on that criteria. Yeah. <laughs> and and on that note, I know I know you have to leave, sir. Um, I do. Thank you so much. 
Thank you very much. Absolutely amazing. It has been a joy. I have learned new things, and I am so happy that after 30 years, I now know that 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 swordfish was a horse feathers reference. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Have a wonderful day, and we'll be back right after this commercial message. Eh, he's lying. We're done. There's no message. However. Join us next week for part two of our 100th episode extravaganza where we'll bring you another extremely interesting person of interest. And until later, later.